Hello and welcome to A Flatpack History of Sweden, the podcast that's going through Swedish history one step at a time from when the first humans arrived here until the present day. I am Chris. And I'm Elsa and this is Law and Order Medieval Sweden Unit, part two. I was wondering if you were going to do that this time, seeing you did it last time and it wasn't the best. No, last time in in part one, we talked about how I like to watch uh, old clips of Law and Order and my uh, terrible attempts of of doing the theme tune. Yeah, so I don't think we need to go over that ground again. Um, (laughs) What are we going to talk about this time? We are going to continue on from where we left off last week. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, that's episode 35, I suggest you do so before listening to this. It will make a lot more sense if you listen to part one before part two. But that's what we are going to get on with today, part two, after our Swedish phrase of the week. Yay! What's the Swedish phrase? This week's phrase is first till kvarn for first mala. So in English, that would be first to the mill gets to grind first. Uh, what do you know about mills, Chris? I've been in the windmill that is about a three-minute walk from my parents' house when I grew up and we used to go there on school trips. So I've actually, I think I've turned the handle to make the mill move around. Wow, for someone who lives in the 21st century, that's extensive mill knowledge. And you can tell how surprised also was because it isn't written in the script about that story. No, it's you're... written in the script that I'm supposed to say not much uh, apart from that's where that you grind the grain. So, haha. Ah, surprise uh, fact from a flat pack history of Sweden. And, and even more surprising, not just in a podcast sense, you have never mentioned this to me in our the whole time that we've known each other. I um, had no I, time. You had no idea you had this extensive mill knowledge. Well, not only is this mill, it's the, uh, oh, what's it called? It's the Blatchington Mill in Hove. It's used as a polling station in general elections, and it's always on the BBC website, which is which gives lists of exciting polling places. So you can vote in the UK general election in a windmill. That has to be one of the coolest polling stations ever. Yeah, unfortunately, even though it's the closest one to our house, we were in a different area. Area, so we got to vote in a boring uh, church hall instead of the windmill. Oh, that's a shame. That was an amazing uh, tangent that we went off on there. But should we try and get back to the Swedish phrase "first till kvarn för först mala"? In this phrase, uh, the mill is more proverbial. It means that whoever does something or says something or gets somewhere first gets to do or say or receive whatever is in question. So it's pretty much exactly the same as first come, first served. In English, yeah, that's that's that would be an English equivalent phrase. I would say they are used exactly the same. Uh, you might say in English, if you're going to an event and there's a limited number of tickets, it's on a first come, first served basis. And we'd say the same in Swedish, except it would be first to the mill gets to grind first. First till kvarn för first mala. First come, first serve would be put up on notice boards and things in the UK. Would you write the same in Swedish? Or yeah. would you shorten it? First you kvarn sh- or something? Or? Exactly. We like to abbreviate things in, in Swedish. So quite often we just write or we'd say, oh, it's first till kvarn. It's first to the mill. Okay. 
Cool. Thank you very much. Um, but we should now probably move onwards with today's episode. Yeah, like we said last week, the early 1200s is a time that sees a lot of change in both the thinking around law and order and the practical application of it. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about the more practical aspects of the legal system. In the previous episode, we covered more the sort of changes in thinking around the law. We said last week that we decided to do this episode now because it is from this point in our journey that we have the first written down legal text, Vestjötalagen, or in English, the Vestjötalag. Historians aren't able to give a precise date for when it was written, but it's dated to the first or possibly the second decade of the 1200s. It should actually be referred to as the older Vesköterlaw because there is also a revised version written in 1284 that's called Vesköterlaw again, but that's referred to as the younger of the two. Well, the Vestjötland law is Sweden's oldest written-down legal text, as we said. It would probably be an exaggeration to call it a book. It's more of a manuscript or a scroll uh, in length. It's all written by hand, because remember this is well before the age of the printing press, and it's likely that the copy that has survived to the present day contains fragments from a few earlier manuscripts as well. There are bits that seem to have been copied from other texts, people using copy and paste when they are writing down this uh, this old text and it's written in a way that's quite common for the period it's sort of a mix between ancient norse swedish and medieval modern swedish and the letters are sort of a mix between more runey looking script and just the normal latin alphabet thrown in there too so it's a bit of a smorgasbord as we would say <laughs> it's actually very difficult to read for someone like me who Whilst I'm a native Swede and I studied Swedish for 12 years in school, I'm not used to the older version of the language. I can sort of make out the odd word when I look at the text and at times I can make out a whole sentence, but I'm far from able to read the whole thing. Well, it's like me reading anything from the 1500s in English. Like before Shakespeare came around, it's well, even Shakespeare is very hard to read in in some ways. So. Yeah, and I suppose that would be true. I don't know. Our listeners are speak a multitude of uh, of language. I'm guessing that it's the same in pretty much any language. That it is really hard to read texts that are, in this case, sort of eight hundred years old. So who? put pen to paper and wrote down this now quite difficult text? Well, that's a good question, because if you remember in the episodes when we were talking about the Bielbu family, there was a middle brother of uh, Burja Brosa and Karl the Deaf, who was never Jarl himself, but he had a son called Eskil, who was known as a lawman in Vestergötland, and uh, this is one of the jobs that we mentioned in passing briefly, and including in the previous episode, as like everything, uh, this Bielbu family had hands in every pie or fingers in every pie, not a whole hand. They were literally everywhere. So you're saying Eskil, the lawman, he is the son of Magnus Minneskjöld, who was the brother of this super Jarl 
Birjabrosa. Yes, and yeah. died in one of those battles, and uh, yeah, I think in, in Lena in 1208. Um, but yeah, it's... Um, Difficult for historians to determine exactly who wrote the Vestiatland Law, um, most likely because it was a number of people, but it does seem like this Eskil was involved in some way, but probably just as one of a group of people mm. involved, because uh, he was around doing this job at the time. Interesting. Yeah, and uh, the Vestiatland Law is very much still an existing physical object. Like I said, it's uh, survived to the modern day. A physical copy is kept in the archives of the Royal Library here in Stockholm and uh, also check the website and you can actually go and see it, but you need to book a time in advance. Um, can you actually like pick it up? Probably not. Just look at it in a case or something? Maybe. I, yeah. I don't know. Since I wasn't able to do it myself, because when you clicked like book, it just had a little disclaimer, sort of service not available at the moment due to COVID-19 pandemic yeah they don't want the law getting corona um <laughs> okay but that's cool uh, that's on our to-do list for later on then maybe definitely and it was quite fun when i was on the library website because obviously everything is catalogued in the same system and the interface is the same for borrowing everything that li the library has so the process is the same if you want to get a Harry Potter book or if you want to get the oldest surviving copy of the Vesjöta law, which is, is just something I found quite funny. as like, borrow Harry Potter. Borrow Sweden's oldest legal text. text. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. I'm sure they don't let you take it home, though. No. Uh. There is a little disclaimer that says you can't take it home. Uh, you can only read it on the library premise, uh, which is probably a good idea because you, you don't want to risk like people taking it home and getting coffee stains uh, on Sweden's oldest legal text, I suppose. No, that's a very good idea, I think. But yeah, there's nothing stopping you from going and having a read. Uh, all you need is a library card, which is free and quite easy to get. Uh, even if you're not a Swedish resident, meaning you don't have a permanent address here in the country, which is something they ask for when you sign up for a library card. Uh, you can get a temporary library card just so that you can access it if you're here for a short period of time. Uh, so that's always something to do. If you're bored on a rainy day in Stockholm, you can go and read the Vesköta law. Or at least go and look at it, if you, <laughs> even if you can't read it because it's so old-timey Swedish. Yeah, read might be the wrong verb to use. Go and look at it. Yeah, cool. Well, the name of the law is also a bit indicative of what the law was because... Uh, Vestiata comes from Vestiatland, so that's sometimes what I call it. I just call it the Vestiatland law rather than the Vestiata law. Um, and that's one of the counties, the major counties where a lot of these kings and stuff are being elected in the last couple of episodes. They're coming from this area because it's where a lot of the first things are happening in Sweden because it's where lots of many people live. And um, this is the law of that area. And it's the first written down legal text. And it's then followed by many other laws, all named after the other counties that they applied to. So the Östgötalagen for the county of Östgötland, Upplandslagen for the county of Uppland, and so on. Because... Unlike in Sweden today, where we have one law that applies to everyone in the country, the laws of the Middle Ages were county-based, meaning they were much more local. One law applied to one part of the country, with another applying to another part. 
In fact, the legal system in Sweden and all of Scandinavia at the time functions a bit like the law does in the United States today, where both what the law says in the sense that one thing can be legal in one state or another and what the punishment might be varies from state to state. Indeed, that's a good modern-day comparison, both in terms of power structures and in legal matters. Sweden had very strong local traditions. The county was a strong concept and a strong identity marker. Many historians see this as an important reason behind the slow emergence of a strong monarchy and a strong nation-state in Sweden – The fact that so much was connected to the county level, including legal practices, so that made it more difficult to establish things on a national level. There were some national laws, just like there are federal laws today in, say, the US, and kings at the time were often interested in strengthening these national laws as part of a general effort to unify the nation under their rule. One example of a national law was the Ed Sures law, with Ed being the Swedish word for oath, were laws issued by the king that local rulers had to swear an oath that they would obey and implement these laws. These Ed Sures laws are interesting because they have to do with the idea of criminalising not all violence but excessive violence and marking some areas as protected. Part in parcel with the Edsura laws come the Threeds laws, which literally translates to English as the peace laws or the tranquility laws. The idea was that certain spaces or certain times or people were sanctuaries. These places or times or people should be kept in peace and tranquility, and therefore it was worse to commit a crime in that place or at that time or against those people. A bit like in ancient Rome, you weren't allowed to kill people in a temple and you could shelter in a temple from uh, soldiers and things. Yeah, and in High Middle Asia, Sweden, one example of how these Frieds laws applied was that the home was a place that was under Frieds log. So it was a sanctuary. And if you committed a crime there in a home, that was worse than doing it out on the road because people should be able to feel safe in their homes. And it's also a bit like what we talked about last week, that a crime committed in the open was less dramatic than a sneaky crime where you tried to get away with it in secret. Exactly. And other examples of places that were put under Friedslag were the Ting itself and the church. And my favourite place, the bath. As in the bath house or in the actual tub. No, just just where you took your bath, Mm. which was probably in a tub. Uh, There was actually something called Badstugefrieden, the bath house piece, a law that essentially said it was worse to commit a crime or to attack someone while they were taking a bath or indeed while they were on the loo, than to attack them elsewhere or at another time. So in short, the bath was a sanctuary, as I think it should be. I don't like to be bothered when I'm in the bathroom. 
I don't think many people do. Um, and so I think this whole law side of things goes back to the whole idea of honor and that doing things secretly was worse than doing it in the open, like I just mentioned. Uh, attacking someone who's in the bath is not really an honorable thing to do, since it doesn't really give them a chance to fight back unless they have a warrior duck that sits on the bath next to them, like our rubber duck. Yeah, we have a bath duck, a rubber duck. Who's a Roman soldier, so he would be very helpful. But yeah, not everyone has that, and it's sort of cowardly, I guess, is the idea that you attack someone whilst they're taking a bath. You know, they're all relaxed, maybe they have their eyes closed, and, and that, that's not okay. No, and uh, but anyway, the Frieds laws and Edsura laws were national laws for all of Sweden. But in general, the county laws were stronger. The idea of uniformity across the country, for example, when it came to laws, was not always seen as something positive in Sweden during the High Middle Ages. Many, and these included people in power, held the belief that the people who live in a certain area know it best and know what it's like to live there and so should be in charge of it and regulate it as they see fit. But what was the actual implementation of the law like? How did the courts work in High Middle Age Sweden? Well, we actually know relatively little of what the actual practice of the law looked like, and much of what we do know is based on facts that we have from Iceland at the time uh, that historians then think might also apply to Sweden. What we do know is that one or more counties with the same law, like Västergötland with the Vesköta law, they made up a lagsaga, and each lagsaga had a ting. Lagsaga looks very much like lasagna. <laughs> yeah, they all shared one lasagna. Yeah. No, one lagsaga. So... An area with the same law, they made up one log saga, they had one ting. Uh, we talked about tings during the Viking Age, and they're still around at this time, but now they have more taken on the form of just a court. Uh, so for simplicity's sake, we might just say that a ting is a court and call it a court. And that's the same in modern Swedish now, isn't it? Well, you have a ting's ret. Mm -hmm. Which is the lowest of the three levels of courts that we have in modern day Sweden. So a local court like this. Mm. Each logsaga was in turn divided into smaller districts called Herador in the Götaland area and called Hundaren in the Svealand area. Only the most serious crimes were dealt with at the court for the whole log saga. Lesser crimes were dealt with by the court in each district. The courts across medieval Scandinavia looked more like modern-day Anglo-American courts do in the sense that they were practiced by a jury, which Scandinavia doesn't do today. Something that I find is really odd, uh, by the way, when we talk about modern Scandinavia. Um, uh, yeah, uh, no jury duty for me. No. Nope. Uh, for anyone. Um, but back to the past. And uh, we don't know the number of jurors, but we do know that the jury was often structured so that half the people were elected by the defense and half by the prosecution. And it could only be made up by free men. So no slaves and no women. Yeah, we should remember that there's very much a class element involved in this. 
It's really only rich, free men who can afford to take time off from the farming to take part in legal practice. We need to keep this in mind when we talk about how legal practice worked. On the other side of things, the victim or the affected people or persons had to bring the matter to court themselves and represent themselves. It's only in the future, in the late Middle Ages and into the Renaissance, that we get the practice of lawyers and prosecutors. There's also no separation between civil and criminal law at this time. In fact, many of the oldest written down laws deal with matters that we would today regard as civil law, such as public access to fishing grounds and things like that, and when you can hunt wolves and how many, or on the other side of things, inheritance and property regulations. An interesting difference compared to modern legal proceedings is that they seem to have placed less importance on evidence and more on witnesses and their statements, which were double-checked, but also on the character of both the victim and the defendant. Uh, I guess that, once again, we're back to the whole importance of honour and truth and character. The fact that so much importance was placed on the character, the personality and the social standing of both the victim, perpetrator and of witnesses did mean that there was a risk of creating a trial that we would probably see as quite unfair with our modern eyes. People who had a poor reputation for some reason or who lacked the social network that was so vital to life and survival in the high Middle Ages, like people who were strangers to that particular local community, uh, they ran the risk of being judged more severely or not being believed A greater importance was also placed on the idea of confession. The perpetrator should ideally not just be sentenced, but should also confess his crime. Again, that's a sign of the importance of trustworthiness in society. And perhaps a certain influence of the church and the idea of confessing your sins in a religious sense. It's also interesting to see that failed crimes were not judged as severely as they are today. Uh, For example, today, if you try to murder someone but fail, you will still be sentenced for what we call attempted murder today. Or, well, there's a whole category of crimes that go under attempted something, and they, they still carry severe penalties in our modern day system. But there seems to have been no such thing in Sweden in the High Middle Ages. Attempted crimes or instigated crimes uh, were judged less severely or just not at all. In general, they seem to focus on how bad the end result of the crime was, rather than necessarily what the intention had been from the beginning. Presumably there was a difference because... um attempted murder you might stab someone and they don't die but you've still stabbed them so you could be uh, punished for stabbing someone but if you ran up to some person in the street and tried to steal their melon but didn't grab it off them in time then they presumably wouldn't then prosecute you because you didn't do anything and you don't have the melon i think if you try to steal someone's melon in the high middle ages in sweden their first thought would have been 
what is that? Where did you get a melon from? Yeah, true. Exotic fruits weren't really a thing in high middle age Sweden. No, that's true. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, anyway. Um, if you were unlucky enough to be caught or suspected of committing a crime in medieval Sweden, you would be taken to the ting. And presiding over the legal proceedings at the ting were men called lagmen, literally lawmen. And this Eskil son of Magnus Minnechweld was one of those in Vestjutland. This role has been around since the Viking Age, and a lawman was in many ways the most important and most visible civil authority in a time where the Swedish state was pretty invisible in most people's everyday life. The king wasn't riding around every single village and showing his face, so you just had to listen to your local uh, representatives and authority figures. These lawmen, because they were men, was a legal expert, a chief justice, spokesman of the court, political leader, an elected official and policeman sort of all rolled into one supreme leader of the ting. These lawmen were elected, so in that sense it was at least a quasi-democratic process, but they were elected for an unspecified amount of time and they almost always came from powerful families like the Bielbu family because these are the people who have the time and the influence to be lawmen, not just uh, Björn on his farm who has a few cows and thinks, oh, I'm going to be the lawman this week. He's he's not going to get elected. No, because Björn needs to uh, always tend to his cows and always farm or he's he's going to starve. Yeah, and nobody would vote for him anyway. There wasn't a formal education required to be a lawman, but you should be knowledgeable about the law and have a strong ability to negotiate and be eloquent. Alongside bishops and, of course, the king, the lawmen were the most powerful and most learned people in Sweden at the time. Lawmen were also present and presided over elections of a new king because, uh, remember, the monarchy is still not hereditary, especially as we've seen in the uh, episodes with the Bielbu family's uh, dealings behind the scenes. So let's imagine you've committed a crime. Stealing this imaginary melon. And you'd been to the ting, you'd been to court. The lawman and the jury has deliberated and you have been sentenced. What were some of the ways you could be punished in 13th century Sweden? In some ways, punishments were more lenient than they are today, and in some ways they were definitely harsher. Overall, punishment grew harsher as the Middle Ages went on in Sweden, and historians think that that's much to do with an increased German influence in Swedish state matters. Interesting, from all those traders coming into uh, Stockholm and the Mm -hmm. various areas. The most noticeable difference from today is that incarceration or imprisonment was not an option as a punishment at all, and nor had it been previously. There simply were no prisons and there was no system of house arrest. Instead, fines were by far the most common form of punishment. We mentioned earlier how previously fines had been awarded both to the victim individually and sometimes to their family, and how not just the perpetrator but that person's whole family were liable to pay the fines. That's starting to change now, and fines are becoming something that only the perpetrator himself or herself can pay, and it's split between both the victim and the state. 
For the victim, the fine was perhaps more what we'd call indemnity or reparations today. And for the state, it was a way to pay for this increased legal system and to also get in more money. The fact that part of the fine was now sent to the state or to the church if it was a crime that was uh, judged by canonical law was one reason why the state and the church is now increasingly involving itself in strengthening and expanding the legal system. Quite simply, there was more money there at stake for them. If there were more crimes that they could uh, prosecute people, then they would get more money. In Sweden, the part of the fine money that went to the state was actually split two ways. One part went to the king himself and one part to the county. In the case of the most serious crimes or crimes of a nature that inflicted damage more to the state than an individual person, the state would get more money, the king would get more money than the local county. Quite naturally, the fine was higher the more severe the crime was. If a person could not pay the fine, the punishment could instead be transformed into hard labour. For those who didn't just get off with a fine, there were harsher punishments waiting, at least in terms of actual pain awaiting the perpetrator. Flogging? Uh, or losing a limb were the most common physical punishments. And uh, do you know which limbs were most often lost? Um, let's go for an arm. Mm, well, in no particular order, tongue, nose, hand, foot and ear. Those were the most common limbs to lose as a punishment for a crime. Uh, obviously, the person didn't get to choose themselves. You know, you were sentenced to losing a particular limb. Physical punishment was often combined with some sort of shaming element, uh, like you were flogged in public for everyone to see. Or indeed, you could be sentenced to shaming just on its own. Such punishments included being paraded through town or having your hair cut off. Again, I think to understand why shaming was a part of the punishment, we need to remember how important honour was to the Swedes at the time. Yeah, we keep coming back to this honour thing, don't we? In yeah. almost every type of uh, situation. In general, when we look back and review court documents that have survived from the time, it seemed like punishments, especially physical punishments, were more often meted out to men. Most likely there were fewer criminals who were women, much like there are today, but we can't know for sure. Maybe they were just better at not being caught. The most severe of all physical punishment is, of course, capital punishment, losing your life. Uh, the death penalty was relatively rare in Sweden in the early half of the Middle Ages. Then it was mostly used on enslaved people, but it became more common in the 1200s, but still relatively few crimes carried the death penalty. A quick sidebar for a jump very far ahead in our timeline, when do you think Sweden got rid of the death penalty? Early 1900s. Yes, 1921, the Swedish parliament decided to abolish the death penalty for crimes committed in peacetime. However, we had the death penalty for crimes committed in wartime until 1973. 
which I always find surprising. Of course, by then, Sweden hadn't been at war for 159 years. So the distinction was a bit unnecessary anyway. Uh, we ha There hadn't been a war time to uh, commit any crime in for a long period of time. The last person to lose their life after being sentenced to death uh, and the last execution carried out was in 1910. And we uh, posted something on our social media about the last public mm -hmm. execution uh, where the axeman took three attempts to cut off this person's head and so then they made them all happen in secret because previously like this public element they were done outside where people could watch yeah but anyway back to the 1200s yes because if you were sentenced to death you were one of those unlucky people there were different sort of levels as to how harsh your execution was you know being killed wasn't bad enough the best the most honorable way was to be executed by decapitation preferably with a sword Hanging was the worst because, we're back to honour, hanging was seen as embarrassing and dishonourable. But you could also be stoned to death, burnt alive, or indeed even gibbeting, the lovely practice where you are hung up in a sort of cage and left to die of hunger and starvation whilst other people mocked you and threw tomatoes at you. Again, they would have needed to find tomatoes yeah. somewhere in the high middle ages first to throw at you. You're, I can only apologize for Chris's abominable fruit and vegetable knowledge. There were no melons no, or I, tomatoes. No, but I'm saying it for a joke. <laughs> Make, it's not that I have bad knowledge. It's because I have excellent humor. Well, we'll let our listeners be the judge of that. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps the most interesting thing about capital punishment was that they were often carried out by the victim or a member of the victim's family, a sort of hangover from the blood feud practice we talked about. So if you stole Bjorn's cow and they sentenced you to death, Bjorn would be doing the cutting. Yeah, with the help of one of his cows. Yeah, maybe. In the 1200s, we start to see the introduction of henchmen or executioners, in particular in towns. And this is done thanks again to influences from Germany, where the practice of having henchmen and executioners and people doing the punishment for you was much older. You'd think capital punishment, the death penalty, was the worst punishment. But there is actually another thing that Swedes in the High Middle Ages deemed as the most serious punishment. And it is interesting because it is something that's completely disappeared today. And that was to be judged fredlös or outlaw in English. To understand why this was seen as so severe, we must once again remind ourselves that we're in a time and a place where being part of a community and being seen as a trustworthy and honorable member of that community is the only way to survive. Without being part of something larger than yourself, you literally get no food and nowhere to sleep in this society that is almost entirely rural and totally dependent on subsistence farming. Because being judged an outlaw meant that you lost all of this support. If you were sentenced to be fredless, which literally translates to English as without peace, you were ostracized or exiled from your community. Anyone, anywhere, could beat you up or kill you. It's, or in a way, it's like a horrific cat-and-mouse game where the outlaw becomes the mouse. 
No one could or would help them. Assisting an outlaw itself was a crime punishable with fines. Because the legal system was based on each county, you were only deemed an outlaw in the county where you'd been sentenced. But as the 1200s progressed, the system was extended, so for the most serious crime, you could be deemed an outlaw in the whole country. Becoming an outlaw was also often used as a punishment for crimes under those less common national laws. I want to know how people, if you walk to another village, how they would know you were the person who was an outlaw. I think we need to respect how fast rumours spread. But you could just change your hair and... uh, How would they know what you look like? News travels fast. Um, Uh, It's difficult for us to really comprehend, but to be Fredlos, being deemed an outlaw, seems absolutely horrific in that it's a kind of mental torture as well. You know that anyone can jump you at any time, beat you and kill you. And you know that's what everyone wants to do. And you're all alone in that. It's a bit like a weird medieval Hunger Games. Yeah, it definitely sounds pretty bad. In many ways, it was almost a way to create a regulated form of the blood feud practice because it allowed the victims, or not just the victims, but anyone really, to seek revenge for this crime while still incorporating it into a more formal legal practice. Becoming an outlaw is also a punishment without end, and we can also assume that most people who became outlaws died pretty soon. You could, in some cases, get out of it by paying huge fines, a practice that doesn't seem very fair to us with a more modern sense of justice, but we don't really know how often many people manage to do that. Well, not nice. Not nice at all. But also very different from what the legal system is like today in terms of punishments. Yeah, I think the only thing that we have that's vaguely similar is if I committed a really bad crime in Sweden, Sweden could kick me out and send me back to the UK and uh, remove my residency. But that's kind of the only thing that I think is very similar now. Yeah, but we wouldn't say that you were an outlaw and then just let you run and anyone could beat you up. No, no, they put me on a flight and uh, (laughs) kicked me out that way. Looking at the whole topic of law and order, what struck me when I was reading and doing research was how some things uh, were quite similar to how we think and act today in terms of legal matters, and other things were so entirely different. Yeah, I can see what you mean. It's not just that Fred says or being outlawed isn't a punishment today. It's how things like prisons, which were much more of a staple of the criminal justice system today, wasn't even a thing in the Middle Ages. Um, The church is also being so much more involved back in the high Middle Ages, both in the theoretical sense, but also in the practical application of the law. Yeah, the church or any religion doesn't have their own legal system or measures to execute verdicts and punishments today in Sweden. And just the thought of that being the case is is quite weird, I think, to, to us modern-day people living in Sweden. Yeah, it's like if you're a bishop in the Church of Sweden today and you beat someone up in the church or steal loads of gold and silver, the church can kick you out of being a bishop, but then they have to give everything else to the police and let them sort it out. Yeah, and I guess 
that is actually a fairly recent development that the church isn't all up in people's private lives with rules and laws anymore. Uh, I think that if we brought back the law that we talked about last week, that it was illegal for two people who weren't married to have sex, I mean, we'd have to prosecute half of Sweden's adult population if that was the case today. Yeah, or more. And... um <laughs> We'll have many more reasons to come back to the topic of law and order over the course of our journey through Swedish history, because obviously as society develops and the time changes, so will the laws and regulations that govern the society. In terms of the main change that happened now in the higher middle ages, the law went from oral tradition to being written down, and there's an interesting debate among historians if that meant that the legal system became more efficient. Were these new laws, like the peace laws that came about now and were written down, more efficient in practice than the oral tradition laws? The bottom line is we never really know for sure. Like we heard last week, some historians have theorized that the laws were even more entrenched when they were oral because people heard them quoted out loud more and in a society where a lot of stuff isn't written down and a lot of people can't read, it's easier for people to remember things that they hear rather than trying to decipher some badly, weirdly written text that they can barely read in any case. Yeah, I remember last week we compared it to how I remember my grandparents' old phone number because I committed that to memory, I didn't have it in a phone book on my phone. Uh, but I don't know Chris's number because it's just always been written down in my phone and I just click Chris when I want to call it. Yeah, exactly. Um, in general, there are theories to suggest that it was the fact that laws were written down that made them more cemented in society, this being one of the more important things that helped move Sweden into the era of rule by law. Either way, it's interesting to see what laws were around at this time, how they changed and how they had an impact on people's everyday life. And speaking of everyday life, just as a side note, we should mention that just because Swedish laws were now written down, that didn't mean that most Swedes could actually read them. Partly because this is before the age of the printing press, so there would have been very few copies of these legal texts, whatever they were. Uh, but also because not that many Swedes could read anyway, uh, we don't have any figures for literacy rates in Sweden at this point. Uh, in fact, we don't know for sure literacy rates until the 1700s, but it's fair to assume that it was relatively low among the general land-laboring population. So, yeah, they couldn't have read the legal texts anyway. So whilst everyone was ruled by the law, far from everyone could practice it or even read it. Practicing law was something that very few people actually did, and those who did belonged to a section of society who could afford not to work the land or do their day job for mere survival every day of the year. You know, take out time from their lives to be these lawmen. With that said, I don't think we have much more to add on the topic of law and order, Swedish High Middle Ages style. For now. Uh, like Chris said, we will come back to the topic as things change over the course of history. But for now, next week we're back with more royal drama in 13th century Sweden. 
and more on the rise of a certain powerful family, the Bielbu family, and one powerful man in particular, Bjöjol. Exciting times, and uh, our Swedish listeners will definitely know who that guy is. So it's yeah. time to tell the story uh, to everyone else, which is going to be very exciting. But until then, uh, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're at Flatpack History Sweden on Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook just by searching the name of the podcast, or you can send us an email on flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com. And in fact, our Swedish-speaking listeners or people living in Sweden who have learned a bit of Swedish, if you have any suggestions on good phrases for us to cover in the Swedish Phrase of the Week, uh, do let us know. Our list is running a bit low. We need to do a bit more work on uh, adding to the well of Swedish phrases. Yeah, so please uh, submit your suggestions. And don't forget to leave a review wherever you listen to us. Uh, It helps us get notice and it makes us happy, happy, happy. And someone who has made us happy, happy, happy is Naomi Yeheskel on iTunes. Yes, it's from the UK iTunes a few weeks ago. Very sorry, Naomi, with the uh, your surname there and the, or your username. I'm not sure if it's your surname or just the username. Um, but it's a five-star, a brilliant podcast uh, is the name of the review. And it says, a really brilliant, comprehensive podcast on Swedish history. My hosts are very funny, and every episode is such a joy to listen to. Each episode is full of interesting things, including a Swedish phrase of the week. Well, thank you very much, Naomi. At least Orsa's very funny. Thank you. Chris is very funny, too. He uh, he makes up for his lack of fruit knowledge uh, by, uh, by being uh, a laugh. Yeah, right. Now, time to throw tomatoes at Orsa, and uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs> thank you for listening. Goodbye. Splat. Splat.